I did have a friend once when I was doing Married at First Sight who had just started a relationship, and this is really dodgy, and he said to me, Anna, and I was like, yeah, he said, could you do some of those tests on my new girlfriend? And I went, well, if she... I said, well, I said, well... If she wants me to, oh no, no, without her knowing. I was like, no! <laughs> <laughs> so that's completely inevitable. So, oh. This podcast is made possible by Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Problems, helps by making learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems to provide a quick and fascinating view into math, logic, science, engineering or computer science. So if you're inspired by what you hear today and you want to learn a little of the science behind it yourself, check out Brilliant.org or download the app. There's a link in the description and the first 200 people to subscribe will get 20% off their premium plan. Welcome to another episode of the Pint of Science podcast, the official podcast accompanying the world's biggest science festival. Pint of Science brings over a thousand scientists to the pub for three nights each May. And in this podcast, we invite some of those scientists that we just couldn't wait to hear more from back to the pub for a longer chat. Now, have you ever thought to yourself, I want to know what love is? I want you to show me, Jim. Well, I'm not going to show you, but we do have someone who can. Dr. Anna Machen is an evolutionary anthropologist, writer and broadcaster whose work centres on the neurobiology and psychology of human relationships. Over the years, she has published on the benefits of group singing, relationship breakdown and reconciliation, best friendships with and between genders, and bizarrely, quite a lot of hand acts. Now, though, Anna has a particular interest in both parental and romantic love, with her work having been described as studying the very nature of being human. As well as her research career, Anna's also carved out an excellent career as a broadcaster. Fans of Channel 4's Married at First Sight will be familiar with her as the lead relationship scientist. Others might know her as the on-screen behavioural expert on BBC Earth's Meet the Humans. In 2018, she published her first book, The Life of Dad, which provides some much-needed insights into the anthropology of fatherhood. She also finds time for a multitude of public engagement activities, including, of course, several very well-received Pint of Science appearances. This week, we caught up with our guest at the Old Thatched Inn in Adstock, Buckinghamshire, where we dissected the importance of fathers, wet brains, and asked whether love is all you need. We'll be back at the end of this week's episode with some more details and where you can find out more about both Anna and the festival. But for now, pull up a bar stool or something comfier and get stuck into a Pint of Science. So we are in a beautiful country pub. We're in the Old Thatched Inn in Adstock in rural Oxfordshire, what do you call this? Or Buckinghamshire? This is Buckinghamshire. Buckinghamshire, sorry, I'm from Glasgow. Get it right. I'm from Glasgow, I don't have a clue where I am. (laughs) We are very excited to talk to you. And as we were saying before we started rolling, there's so many interesting things to get through (laughs) that we may as well just jump straight in. And I think the easiest place to start Mm. is probably right back at the very beginning. Mm. Before your broadcast life, before the research you're doing now, where did it begin? For me, it began... Well, I've been an anthropologist since my undergraduate degree, so I've been an anthropologist, and it began with monkeys. So my first love as a biological anthropologist was primatology. So my undergraduate degree, my master's was very much centred in an evolutionary context, so it's still about trying to answer the big evolution... Well, some of them are quite small, but um, the big evolutionary questions. But, yeah, it began with, with the lovely minkies and researching sort of their social groupings and their cognition and things like where, that. Where were you working with them? Like in... So mainly in zoos, because a lot was was sort of experimental. My my undergrad, I worked in a brilliant zoo where everyone should go in Holland called Appenhul, which is outside Amsterdam, and it's an open primary school. It's the first one in the world. So I worked 
works there, and that was really more looking at the zoo and how it developed and the story behind it. But that was a documentary, actually. Oh, so right, I shot yeah, a documentary cool. about it. So that's kind of where the broadcast began, actually. And then for my master's, I worked at London Zoo. So was there a particular species that you focused on? Or? Uh, at London, there was, there was the Silhouette macaque, which are the black ones that look a bit like Elvis. They've got, like, big quiz. <laughs> and they were, they were amazing. And then I was looking at the evolution of, of sex differences in spatial cognition, actually. So I was doing a foraging task for them to see if the boys and the girls foraged in different ways to try and unwrap the differences that humans have and things like that. So it was, I just loved it. Because I, I still have an ultimate dream of being a zookeeper. Oh, right. That is my ultimate dream. If I could do anything, I'd be a zookeeper. Um, consistent trend with all the scientists so far this week. They've all said, yeah, we like the sense thing, but also the, the real goal yeah, the really, is really. this bizarre job. Exactly. No, I would still absolutely love to do it. Really? Yeah. We're sure you put, if you've already done the monkey thing, yeah, you put yourself exactly, in good stead. Exactly, you know? I think I could get a job. Yeah. Um, so I loved it. So I managed to combine, yes, my love of sort of doing science, but also getting to hug monkeys, which was brilliant. And from your undergrad, you then went on to, I believe, an MSc at yep. UCL. Is that yep. right? Yep. So this is where you started moving away from monkeys and Monkeys walk. were still there. I was taught by a brilliant, slightly mad uh, bloke called Volker Sommer, who is a world-renowned expert on gibbons, but he was also slightly insane but he was also a primatologist so I carried on doing the primatology there but I suppose there was where I started because there was a lot of um, paleoanthropology on that as well actually because I was taught by again an, an amazing female anthropologist called Leslie Aiello and she is a paleoanthropologist and she really instilled that that real love of starting to understand human evolution a bit more okay at, at UCL yeah and in your PhD and this is something I noticed when looking through your publications there's like a lot of hand act stuff suddenly yeah. crops up it's amazing what you end up doing isn't it um, so after I did my masters I, I had to go out into the real world for a few years because there's not a lot of money in anthropology research to be honest and uh, and then I went to work at Reading with Professor Steve Mythen who is a cognitive archaeologist so I suddenly found myself in an archaeology department, which was slightly surreal, as the lone anthropologist. But I worked with him because he had a lot of very interesting ideas about the evolution of the brain and how we can use the archaeological record. To I was going to say, what is a, yeah, a cognitive archaeologist? Cognitive, I've yeah, never so, heard of that. so yeah, he uses archaeology and particularly the production of tools and the the understanding the cognition required for for tool use and all those sorts of things, tool production to understand what stages our brain evolution was at. Right. So he started doing that, and um, he had this theory which I then disproved I'd just like to say. Uh, much to his delight called the sexy hand axe theory which was that so Acherlian hand axes which are very old and started around 1.8 million years ago are symmetrical in three planes and they're like teardrops they're very beautiful and they're very very hard to make really hard I mean I've tried many times and I can't make one and he had a theory that they were so they were overworked they weren't actually for tool use for butchery they were actually there as what we would call an extended phenotype so selected by sexual selection to actually use in display oh wow okay so I eventually disproved that based on a few on evolutionary theory but also ending up butchering a hell of a lot of deer with a lot of different hand axes oh, wow. so like, wow. I ended up doing this in my dad's garage because it was the only place <laughs> this is awful isn't it we couldn't do it on the university campus because the health and safety was so strict that trying to get anybody in there with 60 razor sharp hand axes and 30 dead deer was just beyond impossible so no. we were like right we're going to do it in my dad's garage so I got a butcher from the covered market in Oxford, a very famous market in Oxford, who used them for me. And then I also got Matt Pope, 
from UCL, who is, uh, again, an amazing anthropologist who's worked at Boxgrove. So he was like my amateur guy, and then I had my professional guy, and we spent two weeks butchering deer. Nice. And I wow. never want to eat venison again. <laughs> it's really not where I expected a, a kind of, yeah, professor of love to go yeah. with. <laughs> well, ultimately, my PhD was actually sort of, it, it became something, that obviously, they always become bigger than what you think they're going to start. And it actually ultimately became about the evolution of social and sexual behaviour. Right, yes. I was going to ask, so what was So that that's the... where the social bits started to come in, to understand cooperation and when cooperation evolved, and when we started seeing cooperation between the sexes, and when we started seeing cooperation for the passing on of knowledge right. in terms of tool use and things. So ultimately... It kind of ended up a bit being about yeah about understanding when we started really coming together as cooperative groups, not living as individuals within the landscape, but coming together and having home bases and going out and coming back to the same place and having families. So the evolution of fatherhood kind of came into there a little bit. Yes. Uh, so all of those different things, and that's when it really kind of coalesced together. That's so cool. Was it mostly th- was it through like material culture rather yeah. than? Yeah, there was a lot of material culture. There was well, there was skeletal stuff. So it was understanding changes in anatomy, changes in brain size and things like that, to start to understand when cooperation comes in, when we start seeing male and female cooperation, and particularly the difference in size between males and females. When that started to come within a range which is more like it is today, and that that impacts things like life history and impacts how many people need to raise an infant and all those sorts of things. And so so there was biology in there in terms of skeletal work and brain anatomy and things like that as well. Very cool. <laughs> and this was all still happening in Reading. This was in Reading. But of course, at some point, you ended up making your way to the Department of Experimental Psychology mm. at Oxford. Mm. So was that straight after your PhD? Did you? Uh, I then to... decided to have a child, as you do. So I actually, I actually did my viva at six months pregnant, which was fun. But I thought if it went really, really badly, I could just cry <laughs> and blame the hormones. Luckily, it didn't, so it was all right. But yes, yeah, so I, I had a bit of time off and, and looked after my first daughter, and then, and then basically brilliant I'd always wanted to work with Robin Dunbar and I'd known Robin for years because we'd bumped into each other at various primatology conferences so I'd known him for years I'd in fact taught his son at Reading but he was always up in Liverpool and because of you know family stuff I was like I can't move to Liverpool and then he came to Oxford so I literally turned up in his doorstep and went hello here's my PhD would you like to read it and I'll I'd really like to come and work for you and Robin is the most amazing person if you show enthusiasm he will do anything he possibly can to find you some money and give you a job that's incredible he's the most amazing I mean I, my career would not be where it was without Robin and I did that and he was like yep yeah, come into our group and it was the start of the social and evolutionary neuroscience research group which trips off the tongue <laughs> um, and he was bringing his group together and the idea of the group is it's highly multidisciplinary yes basically so he's an evolutionary psychologist kind of primatologist board and then at the time he had sort of paleoanthropologists he had computer modelers and he didn't have an anthropologist and obviously you've got to have an anthropologist I mean we are kind of like magpies we nick all the <laughs> techniques and all the theories from everybody else because yeah. that's the only way you can understand humans is by is by looking at psychology and philosophy and religion and culture and sociology and all the sad stuff genetics and brain scanning and yeah. everything so I went to join him and, and kind of I fitted into the group then at that point by while there were people looking at the big social structures so the social network and a lot of stuff looking at how Facebook and things like that were affecting our social networks there wasn't anybody actually doing those really intense close relationships that humans have Mm -hmm. so I kind of slotted in there and I started off with romantic relationships and did that kind of work and then within about a year had started looking at fatherhood so that's actually an interesting point like that what you work on now is so fascinating I wondered to what extent you 
had wanted to look at that before you arrived in Robin Dunbar's group or whether it was sort of something the group needed to be looking at and it's you were funny. the person that could yeah, do that. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm sure a lot of your a lot of people who come and talk to you say this. In a way, where you go is partly... It is something that sparks interest in you, but it's partly, you know, where the opportunities are. Yeah. Academia is so hard. You can't have this amazing life plan that I'm going to answer this question until you have enough clout and enough power to get the money to do it yourself. When you're a genius artist, you kind of have to do what you're told. <laughs> yeah. But Robin is also the sort of person who always tries to allow your natural interest to come out. So I was there to do these close dyadic ties. And that's, you know, when I started looking at romantic stuff and also started looking at the role of beta endorphin mm. in human relationships because that was something he was very interested in but didn't have the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very lucky to kind of nick that off him and do that. But then when I turned up one day and went, look, I'm actually really interested in doing this fatherhood thing. I've got a bit of funding myself. I promise absolutely that I will do what I'm employed to do, but would you mind if I also did this? He was like, yeah, go for it. So, yeah, part of it was driven by what the group needed and part of it was driven by him just being very flexible and me saying I really want to do this and we've had Robin speaking at Planet Science Festival I'm he's sure you have he's extremely well received yeah yep. he's brilliant so what are the sort of key research questions that currently occupy most of your time I know how quickly you'll work also you seem to have a new a new interest like quite often so maybe if we, if we say over the last five years what have been the the big questions well obviously the big the big question for me overarching question in the last five years has been about what the role of fathers is in our society and that's very much an anthropological question so understanding that we have this critical person in our society who is very rare in the mammalian kingdom and we're the only ape that has this this role in in our groups but so little known about it so the big question for me was actually what are dads there for what do they do why did they evolve and what's biologically helping them to do that another recent big question is the idea of trying to look at our technology and our, the evolution of our technology in a way this goes back to my PhD I suppose because that was a form of technology but you know we're, we're having a bit of a crisis in terms of our use of technology at the moment and obviously there's been a lot of looking at that and understanding that it has mental health consequences and lots of thinking about in some ways how AI for example is going to affect things but as an anthropologist I actually wanted to go back to the absolute first principles and explain why it's causing mental health problems and why we should be worried about the AI, I think. And so it's it's looking at that and trying to understand what it is about our essential humanity. What is it that is causing this mismatch? And ultimately, I've come down to the fact that technological evolution, unfortunately, is outstripping biological evolution for the first yes, time. Yes, this so is the hair and tortoise. This is the hair and tortoise idea. So there's that idea. And then the big things that are sort of... For me at the moment, we've spent a lot of time at Oxford, again, looking at beta endorphin and understanding it underpinning long-term human relationships and one of my colleagues led a study looking at the genetic underpinnings of neurochemistry that's involved in relationships and we're kind of coming through in that and that's still happening but actually now me being me and the attentive capacity of a dead gnat um, I'm now <laughs> I'm now sort of really interested in the diversity of romantic love so looking at polyamory and looking at aromanticism and things like that now I haven't done it yet sure but that's my next <laughs> That's kind of where I'm going next because my job as an anthropologist actually is to understand the universals of things that underpin a, a trait or a behaviour. But actually it's explaining individual difference. Yes, and there is, is so much crossover between all of your different areas yeah. as well. I found that today when trying to work out how to structure <laughs> my questions, I was like, they all sort of interrelate. Perhaps arbitrarily, I have 
us beginning with fatherhood anyway. So, okay, well, there you go. So, I mean, fatherhood is something, obviously, you've spoken a lot on. You've actually written a book on it, mm-hmm. The Life of Dad, released yep. last year. Yeah. And, yeah, I watched your TEDx talk as my mm. first introduction to this, which I absolutely loved. Thank you. Very, very clear and well-explained. <laughs> Extremely enjoyable talk. And we'll put links to that in the blog post that goes out with this so people can watch that themselves. So, I mean, you sort of already answered this. What was it that sparked your interest in fatherhood then? The actual interest was a very personal reason, um, and this is kind of when science and real life come together, I suppose, is that I had my first daughter, as I mentioned, and it was not a particularly fun experience, quite a traumatic birth. And actually afterwards, my husband was quite deeply traumatised by what happened and what he'd seen. When I was fine, I passed out, so I was... <laughs> and I had a lot of morphine, so it was great. And I was just like, oh, I was given loads of attention, and loads of, and obviously the baby was, and he wasn't really given any at all. And I thought, oh, that's a bit odd, because actually, as a couple, we gone through this together we decided to have a child together you know we've done the test together it was all very together until you get there and then suddenly it's about the mum and the baby mm. and obviously in one sense that's important because that's where the health concern is but I thought well this is a little bit odd because he was very much excluded and I just thought oh, okay that's that's a bit odd and, and as a new mum and as a new parent when I went back to work I just thought I'm just going to do a little little search of the literature and see what's said about fatherhood and the only things I found were about absent fathers which obviously has a critical impact on development very very important but as we all know even if it's not our own father I'm pretty sure we can all identify some dads we know who are doing a cracking job and there was nothing written on them and there was no understanding and a lot's been written on the changes in the human the mother's brain you know the, the hormones that underpin what she's doing but there was nothing on the father mm. and i thought well as an evolutionary anthropologist that's weird because evolution doesn't cause something as rare as human fatherhood to evolve willy-nilly first of all put that amount of energy in it for it not to have been positively it's not a byproduct it's positively susceptible secondly and then leaving them with no preparation at all no mechanisms to underpin it biological changes you know brain changes hormone changes psychological changes so i just thought okay i'm just going to ask a really broad question which is who is the human dad and start from there because nobody's really done it before and i just recruited 15 first-time fathers and followed them, not for very long. I followed them from seven months gestation in the first place to the baby was six months old. And I went to see them before the baby was born and took blood to, to, and we looked at testosterone and oxytocin and cortisol. And we tried to understand what was happening to them hormonally, but then they had a barrage of sort of psychological tests and behavioral tests and questionnaires to do with health, physical health, mental health, the impact it had on their real life, you know, the practical impact and went to see them reasonably regularly and just did that really exploratory, very, very open question. You know, what the hell is going on? And from that started to understand some of the hormone changes and then some of the impacts this baby had on them and particularly some of the psychological changes in personality and also that that the fact that ironically men who were investing fathers were at that point women were in the 80s when they were told you can have it all you know feminism come you can have the baby you can have the work and then you suddenly go I can't because I'm literally dying here I'm so stressed and finding that these dads were also in the same place where they were at work having to provide in that old 1950s thing but also really wanting to be hands on and being driven by their hormones to be hands on and not actually being able to cope with it and that's when the postnatal depression things come in so that was that and it was just very very open but I absolutely loved it the, the dads who were involved I've never had so easy recruitment and I've never had 100% retention I had 100% oh, wow. retention they sticked with me all the way through even though some of them had had a pretty tough time yeah they stuck with it 
Um, and yeah, just it carried on from there. And then luckily, people around the world have started looking at it. So actually, there's now there's quite a little group of us. There's a big group in Australia, brilliant group in, in Israel, kind of emerging in China, which is kind of surprising. Uh, a few in America, and sort of me and a few others in in Britain. Was there anything that particularly like surprised you? Any of the hormonal changes or anything like that? Well, we saw which others were starting to see as well. So the big hormonal change, which is really interesting, is the drop in testosterone that occurs. Could we take this opportunity to define a few of those neurochemicals? Because mm, I was actually yeah, sorry. really, really complimented <laughs> your question there. I was just going to ask, uh, you mentioned testosterone, oxytocin and cortisol there. Mm. Obviously, extremely complex to properly define those. Yes, yes. For the sake of understanding, what are the sort of, what, what's the role of testosterone? So the role of testosterone partly is, is a biological role to make a man a man in terms of all the sex hormones, secondary sex characteristics. Its role in social behaviour is particularly in the mating context. Mm -hmm. So it's there to drive you, to motivate you to find a mate and to be competitive in finding that mate, physically competitive. Sure. Okay. So that's what it's there for initially. Oxytocin is a well-known bonding hormone. It's It's involved in really in all of our reasonably close human interactions oxytocin is involved it's quite a short-lived chemical oxytocin it's very much there at the start of relationships so for example it's critical in those early days of the bond between a parent and a child it's critical in the early days of romantic relationships and then we have cortisol which is obviously the stress hormone because becoming a parent is quite stressful (laughs) um so yeah so we so we had cortisol but the drop in testosterone is critical to fathering because High levels of testosterone, brilliant, make you an amazing mate finder. But once you become a father, actually we need you not to be looking over the horizon for the next, you know, mate. We need you to focus into the family. And also we know that high testosterone actually makes you a less sensitive father. So we know the most sensitive, even if we look at men in general, and a study's been done just on playback recordings of, of infants crying, so let's forget whether they're dads or not. Just men in general, the lower the testosterone you have, the more responsive you are to that cry, the more motivated you are to go and help that baby. Also, what's coming out now is actually high levels of testosterone tend to counteract the impact of oxytocin and dopamine. Okay. And oxytocin, as I've said, is a bonding hormone, so it's quite critical. But dopamine is your general reward chemical, as I'm sure you know. So it's it released whenever you do anything you enjoy. And what we need to happen, actually, is that when you interact with someone you love, you get a reward from doing it. Evolutionarily, that's very important. It kind of bribes you to stick around and do that job. So actually, the lowered testosterone is important, not only in shifting the man's view from the outside world to the family and making him more sensitive of a father, but actually, once it's dropped, he gets a bigger hit of oxytocin and a bigger hit of dopamine. So the bonds to the child are stronger and the reward from investing in that child is stronger. So it's really, it's a critical change in hormones that what we need to see to make that father stick around and do his job. And how long does that drop in testosterone last then? Forever. Does it really? Yeah. After you've become a father? So you... Yeah, you've had it. No. Um, <laughs> so when, I say, when I say this to people, if I do a talk on this, you can just see all the men go, oh my God. But actually, no, it goes back up a little bit, but it will never, it will never return to where it was before. That's so interesting. So this is something I have a whole load of ideas to ask about later but it's already come up so I mean do you come up against resistance to some of your research just from a I guess almost stereotypical perspective you kind of think the criticism of fathers and men quite often is that they are looking for that new mate quite often and and you know they may be a bit led by certain parts of their analysis that aren't necessarily worth mentioning on air but the point is there's a biological reason that shouldn't be the case 
Well, the thing is, we all exist at different levels of all our hormones. So you, you guys around the table here, and in fact us with our testosterone, but we'll exist at different levels of testosterone. <laughs> and for some people, that drop is higher than others. Right. Okay. There are many reasons why a man might look outside the family for another mate, and it's not just hormonally driven. We're very, very complex creatures. There's a psychological element to it, a learned behaviour element to it, there's a genetic element to it. But that drop will vary. Okay. So some men will go through a massive drop, others it might not be as big. And in a way that also explains the individual differences we see in fathering behaviour. So that some fathers do actually find their babies cry intensely irritating, whereas others will find it quite distressing and desperately want to go and solve the problem that is causing that. So it, that individual difference is underpinned by those differences in testosterone. I mean, the the amount, like you say, the amount of things that are feeding into how a father yeah, behaves. Exactly. You know, you've got exactly. your genetics, exactly. your immediate. But we know it's not caused, for example, by a period in life, because not from the study I did, but the brilliant longitudinal study was done in the Philippines. And they studied these men for five years. So, point zero, they collected together, I think it was about 200 men, all single, all hadn't had children. Took their testosterone levels and then just left them and went back five years later and tested them again. Now, some of them had become fathers, some of them had got married, some of them were still single. They were all at the same age. And they found that, yes, this drop in testosterone was only seen in the fathers. So the ones who'd got married and hadn't had a kid still there, the single guys were still there. So it's nothing to do with your age pattern. Sure, it's a causal it's, thing. It's, it's a causal thing. Something yeah. is going on about becoming a father. So there's no, like, cultural... It's been done, it's been replicated all around the world now, oh, wow. which is brilliant. So it's a very powerful finding. So, and you don't even have to live with the mother. So in those societies where actually cohabitation isn't what happens with parents. So for example, in Jamaica, where it's generally that the fathers actually don't live. Um, obviously you have to have some contact with the mother and you have to have some contact with the child, but you do not actually have to be in a cohabiting relationship. And you've talked about the evolutionary importance of, so obviously dropping testosterone leads to more sensitive behaviour, better fathering behaviours. Why is it important to have a good father-child relationship? Is there, is there a difference between the father-child relationship versus, say, a mother-child relationship? Yeah. Yes, definitely. And that's another thing. And this is, you said, does my work ever get criticised? Or I have a real issue with this because what, I, what evolution has caused to happen has caused for those relationships to be different. Mm-hmm. And that's because evolution is not a massive fan of redundancy. The amount of energy it goes into making an anatomical or neural or behavioural change and fatherhood is like all of those upscaled. It's not going to make exactly an identical male parent. That's exactly the same as, as the mum, but just male. Actually, what it's done is it's made those particularly the attachments slightly different, but it's also made uh, the brain activity is slightly different so that actually in coming together they they complement each other they don't mirror each other complex so that that child gets the entire developmental environment so for example you look at the attachment which is the strong strong bond between a parent and child um, between mother and child it's what we call quite exclusive it's quite inward looking it's based very much on nurturing on protection on assessing risk and and, and that kind of thing whereas if you look at a father's attachment to his child it is based on nurturing but it's also based on challenge so it's in a way, it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to look after you, I'm going to nurture you, I'm going to make you psychologically and mentally strong, but then I'm going to turn you around and I'm going to go, right, this is the world, you go out into it and you deal. And so the father is there to push the developmental brandage, to challenge that child, to make it confront risk and to make it do things that are dangerous because you have to learn in this world. Um, and then, you know, if you get overly scared, you come back to me and this is my secure base. 
which is what attachment's about. It's about secure basis. So there is this actual difference. And like one of the major examples of that is rough and tumble play. Sure. which I think all parents and even non-parents recognise that men play with their children very differently to women. It's very exuberant, it involves lots of physical activity, lots of wrestling, lots of throwing through the air, lots of bouncing, lots of, you know, <laughs> breathless laughter, lots of, you know, it's really, really extreme, it's incredibly noisy, yeah. and men do it, and women generally don't. It's so interesting though because already I've got all these alarm bells ringing about people, I can, I can imagine how you would come up against criticism Exactly, because at this her. point I'm saying, you know, I'm reinforcing gender roles. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and secondly, what happens when you don't have a dad? Right, okay, yeah. Um, and, and my answer to that is, well, what we've seen and what we're starting to see, so for example, the other area that, that I've looked at is gay fathering. So when you've got two dads, which in some circumstances means there isn't a mum involved, and some of them there is, but generally there isn't. When you look in the heterosexual couple at, at the parents, and you look at the activities in their brain when they're, for example, viewing videos of, of their child, what you will see is most of the peaking activity for the woman is in the core of her brain, in the limbic area of the brain, which is where nurturing and affection and risk detection are. So the amygdala is going bonkers because it's trying to work out what's going on. And you see a lot of activity there. You see a bit of neocortical activity, absolutely, but, but the peak in activation is in the centre. If you look at the man, the peaking activity is in the neocortex. And the neocortex governs. And the neocortex governs that that more the higher executive functions, and that's where that that pushing boundaries, particularly there, is in terms of social cognition, are going bonkers because it's about pushing the boundaries. It's about fitting the child to go out into the world and survive. Okay. And so you see these differences. But if you look at a gay primary caring father's brain, so he's the one that's doing the I hate don't like calling this, but the mum's role as well <laughs> as the dad's role. Both bits are peaking, and there's a new neural connection between them, so oh, they can wow. communicate. So the human brain is incredibly plastic. So it hasn't actually, rather shockingly, um, obviously my excuse is I do dads, but I imagine that actually in a in a single mother's brain, you might see the same thing happening. Yeah. Because it's very plastic. You know, we've been evolving a reasonably a reasonable period of time. We're not going to leave to chance something as critical as the survival of our, our offspring, which is the point, <laughs> without that plasticity coming into play and without something different happening. The other thing I always say about single mothers is actually... I think in the West we have a very restrictive view of who dad is. So dad is the biological father, mm -hmm. end of. If you go, as an anthropologist, it's my job to study globally what happens. And actually, we are kind of a bit rare in thinking that. If you go to many other cultures, dad is who steps up and does the job. And in many cultures, it's not biological dad. It's uncle or grandfather or brother or friend. And some so it's a whole team of dads who do different things. So actually, if you look at a single mother's life, it's very, very rare that that child has nobody in their life who is fulfilling at least part of the fathering role, who is male. But can their brains still adapt in the same way to... Do you know what? We don't know, and that's okay. the next big question. So for example, we haven't looked at adoptive fathers, for example. Mm. And that's really the next big thing. So because it's a very young area of research, it's only maximum sort of 10, maybe 15 years old, We've only been looking at very much heterosexual, bit of bit of gay, by you know biological parenting, and actually what we need to start looking at, yes, is adoptive fathers and looking at what we call social fathers. So, so those are the guys like the uncles, like the grandfathers, like you know the, the friend. They are social fathers, and we need to see whether those changes occur there. My hunch is that they will. True adoption really does only occur in the human species, mm -hmm. regularly enough for it to be an adaptation. So we need to understand what's going on to underpin that. And, you know, secondly, yes, we need to understand these, these other brains because, 
yeah, bio- the biological dad being the dad is actually quite a is quite a rare thing, mm. and we need to under- understand that what's happening in these other fathers' brains because they're so prolific around the world. It's really interesting to hear that in in homosexual couples, you actually see brain changes that are adapting to take on both roles. Presumably, as we adjust, at least in yeah, I'm thinking of. UK culture, Western culture, mums and dads both being expected to hold down full-time jobs. There's probably going to be selection changes over a long time as to how a mum's brain has to operate if she's also got to be... Possibly, yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if we're in a situation where that, that is becoming universal enough... That, yeah, that we're seeing whole, po- you know, you need quite a lot of, quite a percentage of the human species for a, a change like that to occur yeah. and be actually an adaptation that persists across generations rather than being an in-life plastic change. But, um, yeah, you would you would start to see see those sorts of changes if, if enough women in the world are actually in that position. Unfortunately, at the moment, they're not, because it's what I always say in my talks when I get told off for, for mate-choice behaviours looking very archaic. Is that, well, feminism actually is, a, is not a global phenomenon, so um, there's a lot of women who aren't in that position. Sure. But... Uh, yeah, you would expect to see these changes. So yes, I can't answer your question in terms of non-biologically related dads in terms of adoptive or, or social fathers. But I, as, as an anthropologist, my, my hunch would be you would see it change. Cool, that's fine. I'm, I'm glad I've asked you a question you don't answer. know the answer to. I expect you get asked the same questions quite a lot when you go on things. So if we can, if we can have you not know the answer, that's good. So many things came up there that my structured question asking has kind of gone to pieces because you've started too many interesting stories for me at once. No, no, it's a very, very good thing. So if a child doesn't have a good relationship with a parent, you talk about the really quite long-term, long-term damaging impact that can have. So if you have a poor relationship with a parent later in life, it might actually impair your capacity to have a good relationship yourself. And we're increasingly understanding this, not just in the work that I do, but a lot of people who work in developmental, you know, I'm not a child development scientist, but a lot of people who work in that area uh, and mental health are starting to understand this. And in fact, there's, there's a lot of lobbying of government at the moment to really understand the absolute critical importance of the first, it's called the first 1,001 days of a child's life. So that's from conception up to around the second birthday, okay? And that is an absolute critical developmental period, particularly for the brain, because we are born when our brains are not fully formed. And that means we have a period of accelerated brain growth after birth. So our brain at that point is phenomenally plastic and it is soaking up so much from the environment. And one area that's particularly going like the clappers at that point is your prefrontal cortex, which is where your social cognition sits. So that's the bit of the brain that's gonna handle all those important relationships. And as humans, our relationships sit at the very core of who we are. I genuinely believe that without positive relationships in your life, it will have a major impact upon your mental and physical health and your, on your longevity and on your life satisfaction and on your happiness. So that bit is growing and forming connections, you know, at, a, at an amazing rate. So those very first attachments that child develops, maybe to their parents, but whoever is their carer, the thing about human infants is they can really attach to pretty much anything that meets their needs. They attach to that person. If it's a strong attachment, then that their brain is getting flooded with the most amazing levels of oxytocin and dopamine and beta endorphin. And, you know, you are seeing 
massive increases in grey and white matter in the prefrontal cortex because it's got the perfect developmental environment. And because that bit is fundamental to you going on in life and being able to build these good relationships going onwards, you've got all, all the neural structure you need, the architecture to be able to be good at that. You've got strong resilience, strong mental health, strong physical health. You know, you understand how these relationships fall. You've got good high levels of oxytocin, for example. Then great, you know, you've been given a really firm foundation. Unfortunately, if the opposite happens and you don't have that, then that part of your brain is not going to grow all those neural connections. We know you're not going to have the density of grey and white matter that you are. You're going to have a brain that's flooded probably with cortisol rather than oxytocin, which is the stress hormone. And in short bursts, it's a brilliant hormone. In long bursts, it's, it's dangerous. It counteracts exactly oxytocin. You know, your amygdala will be on high alert all the time. And that means that you will struggle to be able to form those strong relationships, psychologically, behaviourally, but also neurally. You will not be getting the benefit of those relationships that you need. And unfortunately, dysfunctional relationships are one of the major, major causes of poor mental health as a teenager and as an adult. So I was wondering to what extent that's reversible if you I mean because it's a bit yeah. of a scary it is scary <laughs> I think that, uh, Ruth Feldman recently who's a who's a an amazing Israeli neuroscientist and is very into understanding these developmental what happens developmentally with a child in these circumstances she thinks there are there are periods of sensitivity mm-hmm. now first of all the human brain is much more plastic than we ever thought so we used to think, get to an adulthood, it's set in stone, it can't change. It's just, it's just wrong. But in your childhood, there are periods of uber-plasticity, periods of sensitivity. She thinks that, obviously, those first 1,001 days are your critical period. But also, she thinks there's probably one at sort of what we would call the preschool age. So between sort of four and five, there's probably another one. Obviously, there's a big one at teenagehood, because at that point, the teenage brain is completely rewiring anyway. So at that point, you have a major period in which you can intervene. But even going into adulthood, it might be harder, partly because you've got much more history, but you can work to rewire it. Yeah. It's tough the older you get, I think, probably, but you can do it. So there are periods. And I, I quite often when I give talks, I give a lot of talks on this and, and the impact of of upbringing on your ability to form relationships. And obviously, always in my audience, there's going to be somebody who did not have the best start. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very aware of that. And it's about getting across to them that... The first stage is really self-awareness of actually I'm not having the relationships I want to have. I'm not living in the way I want to live. And it's that self-awareness and then understanding that maybe some people are incredibly strong and can overcome that themselves. Mm. Other people need help. It plays into the psychotherapy like mm. sphere, doesn't it? I, I always think what you were saying there makes me think of people who, yeah, realise they're not happy later in life, don't have good relationships and they look to their thinking and CBT and all these things, that's cognitive behavioural therapy is entirely founded on working out ways to alter your thought patterns. But you're saying there is actually a huge amount of science to it as well. There's a huge amount of biology to it and you know you can work through it. And you know I'm interested in the romantic context but also in a way more powerfully in the context of that attachment between parent and child or carer and child. Mm. There are some amazing organisations in the UK called the Parent-Infant Partnership and they work with parents who find it hard to form those relationships with their children and generally it is because of something that happened in their childhood. Uh, and so it's about great breaking that cycle because unfortunately if you don't break that cycle it tends to cross generations because sure. we learn a lot of our parenting from the parenting we were given. 
I'm thinking a lot about growing up. Yeah. <laughs> parent child yeah. relationship. Yeah. Everything now. <laughs> we just mentioned that in a romantic context yes. as well, and that's obviously a lot of your focus as well. So maybe we move on to romantic love now. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I've actually got 101 more things I want to ask about. It's funny, like, as a final thing before we do move on to anything else, I, I my own PhD uh, was around stress, uh, cortisol mm. a lot in particular, and obviously there's a whole school of thought around mothers who are pregnant with their babies can have a huge impact on their child's entire life basically based on whether they experience trauma during that pregnancy and and psychological stress as well obviously if if the mother gets a huge extremely stressful event when pregnant that can actually impact on all of those kind of chemicals for their for their baby as well i mean i suppose that's just very tied in with your it's very tied in it's very tied in and it's something which I contribute a tiny, tiny bit to. Sure. Um, you know, there are so many different players in this discussion, but it's something I follow a lot of people on Twitter who are lobbying the government, who are desperately trying to get a new structure and some funding for these first 1,001 days. Because if you can provide the right support there for, for example, mothers who've experienced trauma during pregnancy, and once that baby is born, to help them bond with that baby, to help them try and counteract any of the impact that that stressful pregnancy has had Mm. on that child, you are doing so much good for the future. Because if you don't, and we have to talk in terms of money with the government, because that's the only thing they listen to, Mm. you know, we know that children who experience trauma or experience neglect or experience abuse are much much more likely to have psychopathology as old as they're older are much more likely to exhibit antisocial behavior are much more likely to have addiction are much more likely to have all their life measures negatively impacted so if we can intervene there obviously it's brilliant for that child and that parent but it's actually good for all of us and it's trying to get people in government I'm getting on my soapbox now but to understand that 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 is where you need to focus because if you can focus there you can undo so much harm UK government people with their yes. hands on the first strings Please, listening just there listen. you go <laughs> so yes sorry I think in that case no. another focus of your research is indeed romantic yeah, love is that, is that still something you're doing a lot of work on or has fatherhood become um, more your I am probably less so to be honest unfortunately I don't get to as much research as I would like to sure. at the moment but yes it's still very much in there but yeah I'm very interested in now those individual experiences of romantic love I think so, you know, when we started doing the work on beta endorphin and trying to understand the role it played in underpinning long-term human relationships, a lot of that is based on romantic love work. And we needed to understand those universals of what, what universally happens in your brain when you're first attracted to somebody and when you fall in love with them, for example. And we needed to understand that. But now we have a basic understanding of that, though we don't have a 100% understanding. Obviously, it's the human brain, so... It's now starting to understand individual differences because the more I work in the area of romantic love, the more you realise how incredibly complicated it is. Yeah. I mean, I joke to people when I do talks that my job at Oxford is to answer the question, what is love? That's the joke we had written. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so whether it's romantic love, parental love, platonic love, you know, love for your dog, whatever it might be, um, it's to answer that question. And... I can give you many answers to that question, which are robust and will stand up, but they are all so intertwined. And the wonderful joy in one sense of studying humans is you can sit there and go, right, I understand why you're doing this, and I understand why you're doing this, and I understand why your relationship history looks like this, and I understand you know, what your oxytocin and beta endorphin levels are like, and I understand what culture you come from, and all these different things will impact your experience of love. And then that person will throw you a curveball and do something completely unpredictable, and you go, 
I have no idea why you did that. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the thing. And I always say to people, there isn't a formula. It's not going to be that you're going to get to the end of this and I'm going to go, right, this is what your genetics is doing. This is what your neurochemistry is doing. This is what your psychology is doing. This is what yeah, your culture, history, sociology, religion is doing. So therefore, you will do this. And this is the formula for you to find love, long-term love. Because people always kind of come to my talk saying, <laughs> I'm going to give them the answer. And that's not going to happen. And in one sense, I think that's really wonderful. Yeah. Because... I want to understand individual variation, but the fact that how I experience love and how everybody around this table experiences love is different is what makes you human. See, that should be the answer we give to Hadaway from his 1993 yeah, exactly. song, What is Love? There you go. Um, you know, and actually that's wonderful because actually our, our lack of understanding of love in a way is what drives us to find it and to stick at it, but also to produce art and poetry and you know, yes, Hadaway songs and whatever it might be, <laughs> which is maybe a negative thing, but... Um, oh, and if you took that away, if we, if someone tomorrow said, I can give you... Someone sent me an email the other day, actually, which was really interesting. They said, if the scientists from the future who understood everything about love could come back and answer one question for you, what would it be? Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I was like, A, that's really hard, but secondly, I wouldn't want them to answer all my questions. At the most basic level, and what I guess would be the immediate thought is it's it's a tool for reproduction. Yeah. If we're looking at it from an evolutionary perspective, you wanna fall in love so that yeah. you stick with your partner and raise your children or whatnot, exactly. but it's the it's the drive to keep you with your your romantic partner. Yeah. When I when I do my talk on this, basically the answer is love is biological bribery. Right, yes. <laughs> because actually, whilst we need to cooperate with each other, as you say, to subsist, to learn everything there is to learn to survive in this world, to raise our children, mm. it's ruddy hard work. Mm. And actually in an ideal world we'd be solitary. Because there's a lot of stress associated with cooperating with people. Mm -hmm. You know, we live in a hierarchy. We have to spend the whole time monitoring each other to make sure nobody's going to stab us in the back. We have to build alliances with people to keep ourselves where we are or pushes up the hierarchy. Sometimes those are people we don't even like, but we have to do it. You know, we've all got a work colleague. I'm sure you love each other. <laughs> that you go, I actually don't really want to work with you, but I have to. Um, so it's very, very stressful. It takes time. We have to give over a huge amount of brain power to it. Mm. The whole of your prefrontal cortex, this massive structure, is just to make sure that, yeah, you can cooperate with each other, you know, on deciding who's going to make the tea or whatever it is. You know, it's just mad. Yeah. Um, so it's very, very stressful. We have to cooperate across the sexes, which is even more stressful. So actually, evolution came up with love to bribe you to stick around and do it. Because if you didn't do it, we, the species would die out. Uh -huh. So that ultimately is the answer to what love is. It's biological bribery. It's a set of neurochemicals which motivate you to start relationships and reward you for sticking in them. Anna knows a thing or two about analysing our biological past. But how do we calculate the incredible complexity of life, evolution and the human brain? How do we actually work out how we became the humans we know today? This podcast is made possible with help from Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org is a website and app which teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into math, logic, science, engineering or computer science. Each problem provides you with the skills and framework you need to tackle it, so you learn the concepts by applying them. There are quizzes if you want to learn more, and a community of fellow problem solvers if you get stuck. And they've got a brilliant module on computational biology, which can help you learn the basics of calculating what makes us tick. It might not help you find love, but it'll certainly help your love for science. Here's something else you'll love. We've put a link to brilliant.org in the episode notes for this podcast. The first 200 people to sign up through the link will get 20% off their premium subscription. 
you said there's no formula, but are there any like clues as to what make successful, yeah. you know, long lasting? Is there any any yes. sort of like yes. hints that you know? Absolutely. That, no, yeah. there are certain things we know. So you know, pulling together not just our research in Oxford, but research on you know. Thousands and thousands of relationships have been studied over the years. You know, good ones, ones that aren't going quite so well. So yes, there are patterns that you see. One of the most powerful things actually is based in attachment theory. So attachment theory is a psychological theory and psychologists argue that it was developed to try and actually give an objective measure of love, is attachment. And attachments are very rare in your life, okay? You probably only have four or five across a life course and they you will have had attachment to your carer when you were a baby whether it was a secure one or not you will have had one and then you will have attachments to lovers but not necessarily all of them and you will have attachments to your own children if you have them and you might have an attachment to your best friend if it's intense enough but they're very intense profound relationships and it's a psychological mind state so if you're separated from your attachment figure you will experience separation distress you have an absolute craving to be physically in contact with your attachment figure. And we know there are certain attachment profiles that come together better than others. So if we think of romantic love, there are four attachment styles. The secure, which is what it sounds like. You're secure, your feet are firm beyond the ground. You don't have intimacy issues. You don't feel anxious about being in a relationship. You know, you're a good, firm person. We have preoccupied, people who are preoccupied. Crave, oh, there's a dog. Crave intimacy, commenting on what I'm saying. But crave intimacy not because, in a way, they desperately need it, but they are very anxious about being abandoned. So they actually cling. They cling to their to their lover so that basically the person can't leg it. <laughs> then you've got fearful avoidant people. Fearful avoidant people are also highly anxious about being abandoned, high anxiety of abandonment, but they deal with it in a different way to preoccupy people. They just avoid relationships. Because if you don't have a relationship, you don't get hurt. And then at the other side, we have dismissing avoidance. Now, dismissing avoidance, I kind of have a lot of respect for because these are people who just don't do relationships, just not interested. Now, sometimes it's because they have an immense fear of intimacy, but they don't get anxious about being abandoned because they're not interested in being there in the first place. Now, dismissing avoidance are, are again, quite rare. It's quite a small percentage of the population. But what we know is those some of those attachment styles fit together better in a couple than others do, for example. So you can say to somebody, the reason why your relationships aren't going terribly well is that you are a dismissing avoidant and you spend your whole time with other dismissing avoidants, which means you spend your whole time just running away from each other. Um, you know, or you are preoccupied and your partner is fearful avoidant. Again, that's going to be tricky because you're both very anxious about abandonment, but one of you deals with it by clinging, the other one deals with it by legging it. Do you see yeah, what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. There, there are things like that. We're starting to understand the genetics that underpin some of this, but I would be very nervous about saying any of it's predictive. Okay. Because obviously genetics are not deterministic and we don't understand enough about the genes expression and their interaction with the environment to be able to say okay you carry this particular version of the oxytocin receptor gene therefore you are going to do this <laughs> we are seeing patterns in terms of for example some genes seem to increase the likelihood that you will be in a long-term relationship they seem to increase the motivation for that person and the reward that person feels from being in a long-term relationship we know that there is another gene associated with serotonin that seems to increase the likelihood you will be single for example, but it's not the gene for being single, for example. <laughs> so, really yeah, exactly, that's quite scary. There are certain things, you know, we know that, for example, depending on your culture, you might have certain perceptions of what love is. So if I ask the question, what is love in different cultures around the world, I will get different answers even though it's a universal. But here in the West, we associate love with romance and euphoria and the absolute pinnacle of happiness and oh, there's lots of little birds flying around and it's lovely. If you go to China um, and you ask what is love, love there is seen more as quite a sorrowful emotion. 
want to do a sort of unmet desire, unmet love, if you go to some of the South American Catholic countries, what is love? It's to do with self-sacrifice and suffering. So actually you show your love by sacrificing your own happiness for somebody else. So that it's very culturally ingrained as well, what love is. So yes, how you've grown up can also influence the level of success you will have. Even our sort of Western conception of romantic love. I mean, to me, that even seems like a relatively recent thing as well. Yeah, like, it is. Last, you know, yeah. the romantics that yeah. was, you know, 300 years ago or whatever. That's, yeah. So that's not something that's... Been around a, forever. Yeah, no. exactly. Absolutely. And love was something... In a way, people get sort of love and marriage conflated, and obviously they're two completely different things. Love is a biological drive. <laughs> marriage is a social construct. But, you know, yes, it wasn't necessarily to feel love for the person you married, but you would want to feel love in your life possibly with a lover. That's true. But that's a different thing. That's why it's so incredibly complicated, because it's not only a biological and an evolutionary drive, but it's something that's very strongly influenced by your culture. And what is acceptable love? Mm -hmm. So I'm very interested in ideas of acceptable love, and then moving on to my interest in love drugs the development of drugs that either make finding love or being in love easier for you or inhibit love, okay. stop love. And then you get this ethical question of there are 72 countries in the world where homosexuality is still illegal and possibly punishable by death. So those people's, in the first instance, experience of love is going to be very different to yours or mine because our love is not public. You know, you cannot be public about your love. And actually, love is a very public thing even into, you know, Facebook official and Instagram, whatever. And, you know, you know our love is, is, is very public. We display our love. But in those countries, that love has to be hidden. And that, that changes what love is for you. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's... then you go to the idea of love drugs and the idea that some drugs can inhibit your feelings of love. If those drugs got into the wrong hands in those countries, would, be, would those people be yeah. forced to take them so they don't feel the illegal love? This so it's very complicated. Sorry, I'm waffling on. No, not no, at no, all. You're, really not, you're not at all. And it's really like, yeah, there's so many ethical questions. That's crazy. I spent about 10 minutes thinking about what personality type, what relationship type yeah, I was yeah, there. You go on, just had an introspective look when you listed those four types. Thinking back to when I was doing my degree, we did some bioethics stuff. Um, we covered a very controversial area. I think it was an academic called Julian Savalescu was the chap's name. But he, he had a whole load of papers out about uh, moral enhancement. I think there's a, there's a number, isn't there? Dunbar's number that governs how many people we can supposedly have yeah. any kind of relationship yes. with at 150. once. Yeah. And yeah, 150, there we go. And his argument was that you could expand that by literally messing with our biology. <laughs> I mean, it's like... Revisiting what, what could the, go wrong? What could go wrong, <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. I was interested to know if you'd read any of his, his stuff. I haven't. I am very interested in this because you can, for example, now you can buy oxytocin to squirt up your nose. Okay. It's not regulated. Wow. It's actually sold as a pheromone, which is just weird because it's not. But the idea is you squirt it up your nose and it makes... The way oxytocin works is it lowers your inhibitions to starting new relationships. And it does that by quietening your amygdala. So all those voices in the back of the head that make you feel less confident about like crossing the bar to talk to somebody you fancy, it just quietens the amygdala a bit. So that, that anxiety, that fear disappears a bit and that's how oxytocin works and so what you can do is you can squirt it up your nose before going out on a friday night and it will give you a little bit more confidence it's a bit like having you know a couple of cheeky Al pints i was gonna say this yeah, 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 yeah. alcohol also do it's basically yeah, yeah. Like alcohol does and so you can buy this on the internet and 
And obviously, that's what would happen. They're saying that it's a pheromone, and therefore, for some reason, you squirt it up your nose and people flock to you. I don't know how that works. <laughs> anyway, so that's already out there. It's unregulated, and actually, it's scarily unregulated because we know that not everyone reacts to oxytocin so squirting presumably their nose in the same way. Bad things can happen as well. Bad things can happen as well. It's studies recently done where they just used a general population. So when it's used experimentally by us, you know, there are very strict rules on who we select. We screen people very carefully. But a, a group in America did just decide to do it on a general population. And for some people, it worked the way it's supposed to. And they felt much more confident and had a wonderful evening. Other people, it actually had the opposite effect. And in wonderful scientific speak, it made them more aware of in-group, out-group difference. Which basically means they were more aware of, you're not in my group, and they became quite aggressive towards people they felt weren't in their group. Yeah. So maybe yeah. racist or bigoted or whatever it was, it made them more like that. Oh, wow. Because the thing is, your brain chemistry is so finely balanced, you can't just go squirting things into it <laughs> yeah. and, and be yeah. up to dick. Yeah. <laughs> but this is where this is going. And certainly, I did a really interesting talk with a couple of PhD students a couple of years ago, philosophy students, who were exploring the ethics of love drugs and, and the idea. And research is being done into MDMA. Now, MDMA is ecstasy. There's general evidence that if you take ecstasy regularly, first of all, it increases your empathy, but also people who are on ecstasy report feeling real drives to want to be in love, crave being in love, and feel much more love to their fellow humans. Mm. So the argument is, well, could we harness that bit of it that's not dangerous and somehow use that to make everybody a bit more loving? <laughs> now, the ethics around that are this. There was something I read recently, on uh, an anecdote on the internet about a guy who had a long-distance relationship with his girlfriend. The first time he met her, he was on ecstasy in a club, fell passionately in love with her. They saw each other every weekend. He took ecstasy every weekend, passionately loved her, loved her, loved her, loved her. After two years, they thought, well, this is going really, really well. We should actually move to the same city and live together. Trouble is, he didn't take ecstasy during the week. And he quite rapidly realised she didn't love her. Uh -huh. <laughs> but the sadness is, she loved him. So his taking of a drug actually had a major impact on her. Yeah. So when you take a drug like that, you're not just influencing your life and your behaviour, you are influencing someone else's happiness, life satisfaction, whatever it might be. And that is where the ethics come in. Because your love relationships sit at the centre of your well-being, starting to muck about with it in that way is difficult. Those are the questions I think we need to talk about because, let's face it, out there there will be a drug company who thinks, brilliant yeah because love is big business we know that by how bad if you could say to somebody take this and you will feel amazing love for people yeah. or even spray this on yourself and, and you can influence somebody else's behavior mm. and make them fall in love with you well yeah, yeah. That, that's <laughs> going to sell yeah, that yeah, is yeah. going to sell to some some percentage of the population it will sell and therefore there are a lot of ethical questions about it it's interesting what you, you touched on it there there's passionate feelings like love that typically we think of in a positive way but then likewise like hate is quite mm. a passionate feeling mm. and you touched on it there like messing with the balance of these chemicals presumably knowing about the science of love to some extent you have to also think about the science of these more negative well, emotions because you have to really feel something for someone to hate, to hate them, them. You do. no I mean I strongly believe that hate is the other flip side to love right and one of the things that really interests me and I'm currently sort of starting to think about the next book and one of those is actually in a way the darker sides of love mm. so we crave love we crave social connection but in some hands that can be used to control you mm. so I'm not just talking about 
abusive relationships where people use the fact that somebody loves them to control them. But we think about things like charismatic leaders. So charismatic leaders use the devotion of their followers to sometimes make them do inconscionable things. And that's all playing off our craving, our need, the addictive nature of the, of the chemicals that underpin love, to belong, to be loved. And therefore, love definitely has a dark side because love is also about control. I mean, ultimately, love is evolution's way of controlling us. It's the way that it gets us to reproduce and pass those genes down. But because we crave it so much, you can then, the flip side of it is you can use it to control people. Sort of hate, I feel like that's often felt in the abstract, so it's not towards one particular individual. Yes. You, people are, you know, coerced to hate all kinds of, you know, huge yes. groups yes. of people. That emotion isn't focused on one, one person. Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's a sort of a generic, all encompassing, yeah. yeah. like, yeah. negative emotion. Hated, hated, yeah, 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 yeah. But I think that darker side of love, I think, you know, we need to acknowledge it. That it's there. Yeah. Is there a is there a sort of beta endorphin and oxytocin are these kind of chemicals that are typically associated with? I'm possibly very much <laughs> misrepresenting the science there, yeah. but if if they're the love chemicals, is there a, an equivalent when people do experience feelings of hate? Hatred. To be honest, I don't know. It's not something I've looked at. I'm not sure. It's necessarily because the reason why love has a set of neurochemicals associated with it is because it's something that evolution has made that has to happen. Yeah. You know, we have to love each other. I'm not sure whether hate would be underpinned in the same way. I mean, obviously hate has a, has a, has a brain pattern. Presumably also has a purpose to some extent. Would it, it have evolved? Yeah. Just like a side effect of is making well, it's, you, it's make it's you feel closer to, to your own I suppose, group. Yeah, your in-group, yeah. you know, the whole point of, of, of humans are we are group living like a lot of primates and we define ourselves against other. <laughs> So we define ourselves about this is our group, we are all the same because of this, and you are the out group. And therefore we define ourselves, and sometimes that will go over into racism, hatred. So hatred is there possibly for the protection of the group, but it's when it gets extreme. It's the same way, you know, love evolved for a positive reason, but it can be used to negative ends. I knew this would happen. Uh, there, are, there are so many questions, and I am aware that you research a lot more things than we've talked about <laughs> so far. So. I suppose, yeah, now is as good a time as any to talk a little bit about, as well as research, you obviously have an entire separate gig in the world of broadcast and media, which is really exciting, and I'd like to know more about how you got into that. <laughs> Massive accident. <laughs> um, as these things, I never really wanted to be sort of a tele scientist or a broadcast scientist, but um, in one sense, I think, because I study something that is so central to everyone's lives, it's it's quite an easy public engagement gig, to be honest, compared to some of my colleagues in physics who have to explain, you know, complex stuff. So in one sense, it was always attractive. I got Googled one day by... There was a programme called Married at First Sight and they wanted a scientist, and I think, for once, being female in science was a positive. <laughs> and I think there's a bit of positive stuff there, but I'm taking that, that's fine. And they wanted a scientist to explain the science behind relationships and, you know, do, do some fancy experimental work and stuff like that. So I got into it like that, and that was my first experience. Or in one sense, my very first experience, it's just a bit of a change from sitting in front of a computer or being in a lab or whatever, and that's nice. But then you start to understand the huge power of communicating mm. this to people. And I think from that, I'd never really realised before I did that how central and how much time pe thought people give to their relationships mm -hmm. and worry about their relationships and want reassurance and want, want to understand this science. And I think that's the first thing that taught me that. And then from going from there, you kind of become the media go-to for 
anything to do with love. So, you know, I do a lot of the stuff on the radio and things. Like, and I, I enjoy that because actually the work we do at Oxford is powerful because it influences directly on people's lives. And it's a science that they can readily understand from their own life experience because we've all been in love or looked for love or been hurt by love or whatever it might be. But at the same time, presumably, as the researcher as well, you spend a lot of time being like, yeah, we can sort you out with a partner, but also it's way more complicated than that. Yes, so that does get frustrating. So talks or whatever it might be, people will go, so I've been doing this and I keep on attracting this kind of person. What's going on there then? Yeah. And you're like, well, it's quite complicated and I'm not a therapist. But yes, it's frustrating sometimes working in the media because some of it's very complex and you don't get to get that across. Other things that frustrate me massively is some sectors of the media believing the public is stupider than they are. Now, I know when I'm given free reign to talk to people and I don't have to stick to a script or I'm not going to be left on the editing room floor, I can explain pretty complex things to people and they can get that and they can understand that. And so sometimes I find it very hard to have to either dumb it down to such an extent it doesn't make sense or it has to be tied to some gimmick. Because actually this science, I maybe it's because I'm a science geek, but I think it's fascinating in its own right. I don't think it needs a, a clever gimmick or a clever format. I think if you just sit there and go, OK, people, this is what your brain is doing. It's firing off all over the place. And this is why you feel like this when this happens. People just go, wow. Yeah. You know, they don't need. And so something with Married at First Sight, you know, I, I enjoyed doing the two series I did. I didn't go on doing it because uh, we did a lot of science in that series that never got to the screen. Mm -hmm. And actually, I know that people are interested in that science because I do talks which are sellouts explaining how we do that science. And that was frustrating. Well, we find this all the time with Pint of Science talks. So yeah. In the pubs, yeah, people typically do present their science at quite a high level. Yeah. And as you say, it's very rare people come out of it oh, saying, yeah, I didn't understand, oh, the word didn't understand of that. a word of that. You know, yeah, it's, it's exactly. people enjoy being, as you say, not patronised and yeah. actually having to challenge themselves. You know, after I've done my talks, I always say to people, you know, here's my website address, there's a contact form. If I haven't answered your question, send me. And, you know, I usually get five or six questions after every talk. And they're really deeply thought questions. And some of them send me off in whole new directions. Yeah. Which I hadn't even thought of. Yeah. Because I, I just go, actually, do you know what? I don't know the answer to that question. And I'm going to go and try and find out. Certainly. And I don't know how much you'll be able to talk about your new Have you got anything book? coming up? I do have something coming up on telly but I can't tell you about it because okay. I'll get shot <laughs> uh, uh, so we have something coming up should be exciting hopefully we should be out later this year and then yeah my next book which we haven't sold to a publisher yet so I don't have to be a bit careful, difficult, careful. but um, <laughs> we can edit later yeah yeah, yeah. but um, it's actually on love but the idea of the book is to show you actually whereas my other scientists who've written love books it's about trying to reduce it to an answer to a formula the idea of my book is it's actually it's expansionist it's go it's actually show you how mind-blowingly boggling human love is and actually how awe-inspiring it is because i think love is the one thing that shows you how awe-inspiring our species is because when you try and answer that question you realize how complicated we are and how many different variables will come in to to actually make somebody's individual experience of love you know evolve yeah. and actually so that's what the book is about it's about actually by the end of this i want you to go oh my god my in a way my brain hurts because it's so complicated but at the same time it's so amazing 
And you would be missing a trick if you didn't get forward by Hadaway as well, right? I know, I should yes, tonight. Yeah. Or maybe just the free download. <laughs> <laughs> you have to read it and to play that at the same time. And obviously a lot of your work is talking about how important love actually is for our health and well-being. Mm. To what extent can someone who maybe, you know, not everyone is going to end up in a successful relationship yeah. that lasts their whole lifetime. To what extent can you do yourself good by having God, religion, if you, if you genuinely feel love for either a concept or a community mm. like that, can mm. that still have those Absolutely. same... Absolutely. I would argue that, yes, love for a higher being, if you genuinely believe in that, is a good thing for you. There's a very, very small amount of research that has been done, for example, at looking at what happens in monastic orders and what happens with somebody who truly their great love is God. Certainly there's a, a growing body of cognitive and neuroscientific research into religious love mm. and putting actually people in scanners who believe this and actually, you know, are the patterns in their brains the same as if you were in love with, you know, your husband or your wife or whoever it might be? So that's really interesting and, and sort of love for avatars or second worlds, <laughs> all this sort of thing, that's what makes it really interesting. Is, it, does the human brain actually have that capacity? There are many different sorts of relationships and I actually, actually this is coming out later in the year, I did a, a really nice documentary with Kathy Burke and she was exploring 21st century womanhood but one thing she was looking at was relationships and the fact that she doesn't want a romantic relationship and was this going to be bad for her? And I was like, well no, because there are so many other relationships you can have. Yeah. In, a, in, in a way, romantic love is the one that is disposable. If you don't really want to have a kid and you don't really need that love to underpin it, then you find love in many other places. Love for your friends, you know, love for your family. And actually, arguably, the ones that you really cannot lose in terms of your mental and physical health is your love for your friends. Friendships are fundamental to your mental health, so it doesn't have to be romantic love. I would say somebody is risking their health if they have no relationships at all. Yeah. Because you really need that interaction. You really need that support network. You need that that what we call biobehavioral synchrony, the meeting of, of, of hormones and minds and everything that happens when two people are very, very close. You need that for your health. Let me just very briefly explain what biobehavioral synchrony is. Yes, yes. So, so it was an idea developed by, again, by Ruth Feldman, who is really one of my idols. And she, just the classic, noticing that when two people are very tightly bonded, whether it be parent and child or lovers, their body language mirrors each other, okay? Mm. So she took the next step and said, well, does their physiology come into synchrony so their heart rate their body temperature their blood pressure and she found that they do so if you're very closely bonded you will have the same blood pressure the same heart rate the same body wow. temperature so then she then thought well what's going on in the brain and she decided to look at people's oxytocin levels because oxytocin is very easy to access the others are a, a nightmare to get hold of to be honest <laughs> so you can get oxytocin from urine or blood or saliva so she separated a load of people who were passionately in love took their baseline levels of oxytocin because we all exist at a baseline level of these neurochemicals and obviously they were different brought them together got them to interact for 20 minutes separated them again and their oxytocin levels had come into synchrony that is biobehavioral synchrony it's something going on we don't know how it works but something in profoundly bonded couples it's like the body and the mind are what so it is real because you do feel it's it when real. you're in a relationship literally real. in sync yeah. Absolutely in sync. This is where you come into the whole social media thing. Yes. Is that is is the fact that you know we believe that we're connected to more people than ever before, but we're not, because actually, again, studies done by Robin and, and some of my colleagues have shown that actually the people you really interact with most, even on social media, are like the five or six people who sit at the very core of your network, and the other people, then they're, they're not. I, sorry, guys, but they're not friends. You couldn't turn up on their doorstep and say, "Oh my God, I've lost my home. Can I sleep on your sofa?" Yeah. You could 
couldn't do that. And you're not getting that neurochemical benefit from them. Actually, all these amazing technological things, whilst they have many, many advantages, they're not expanding your social network. You are still behaving just as you did, you know, 500 years ago in terms of your social network. And certainly, you know, at my talks that I give on love, you know, I get a lot of millennials who basically are struggling, you know, with the whole Tinders and the online mm-hmm. dating world and all this kind of thing, and actually are actively backtracking from that and going what they call old school, which I think is yeah. hysterical. <laughs> That's kind of what we did. Uh, but, you know, yeah, actually meeting in a bar or meeting someone for a friend yeah. or, you know, actually going back to what we would call the old-fashioned ways because they've actually found that, you know, while some people, you know, develop great relationships on Tinder, others find that it's not the best platform. Is it because it sort of, it feels like it almost almost gamifies it as well. Yeah. It sort of turns it into... And it like is a, a massive game. Yeah. And also, I mean, talking about chatbots, you know, yeah. there are now there are now AI machines that will actually do your answers for you. <laughs> so you might not even be talking to a human. Yeah. So, and that's the problem, because again, we, we evolved to be social in person. <laughs> and all our abilities to spot cheats and liars and all that kind of thing is built into having you in front of me and being able to use all my five senses and all my amazing brain to assess... You know, are you a good one or a bad one? And you can't do that. Your theory of mind does not work on Tinder. You can see how it could almost be a happy middle ground when you think it only takes one extra step within Tinder to be like, we also you know, suggest meeting at this stage. Well, exactly, and there are there is one that's come out, and I can't remember what it's called, which is they do restrict you, and they basically say you're only allowed to have a certain number of interactions online, and then they block it. So right. if you actually want to go forward with this person, you actually yeah. have to physically go and meet them. Is that sort of evolution being co-opted by culture well no what we what there's been some really good arguments on this lately is our brains evolved in a world where we interacted people with people right in front of us and we have not evolved the perceptual understanding that people on a screen are not oh. real <laughs> kind of a, a binary argument one side say it's just dysfunctional as an adult having a relationship with an avatar or having a crush on Justin Bieber is just dysfunctional. Whereas the other end of the spectrum argues, no, it's not. It's just a lack of perceptual understanding that this person actually isn't in the room with you and you don't have that interaction. At the moment, those are the two branches of parasocial argument as to what's going on. Because obviously, crushes are really adaptive when you're a teenager. But the argument is, what's going on when you're an adult? So it could just be a side product of the fact we do not have the perceptual understanding that that's a screen and that person's not real. It's interesting because you frame that in, I think, probably quite rightly, a quite negative way. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound healthy to be loving something that isn't real. But then that is exactly the kind of technology that is kind of put into use with something like uh, Paro, right? Is that the name of the seal? The seal. Yes, for, for the seal, dementia and the, Alzheimer's. Yeah. It's just basically, it's a, it's a seal that is toy seal, not a real seal. That would be <laughs> unusual. A, a toy seal that is, I think, given to, as you say, I think you might know more about it than me, actually. It's basically given to elderly people with Alzheimer's. And because it's very sort of predictable, I think it, it makes them less distressed with those basic levels of care than having to interact in a very complex way you would with a human. And so they find it quite reassuring and they care for it and they stroke it. And, and, and uh, it's very much used particularly in Japan, isn't it? They've kind of yes. pioneered it. I don't see it as a negative thing because I would say, you know, we don't... The, the jury is really out on, for example, whether in adulthood having what we call parasocial relationships or crushes online or whatever this might be actually isn't giving you any benefits we don't know yet those sorts of relationships might give you some benefit Mm -hmm. but possibly not as powerful a benefit as you would because there's no wet brain you can't have biobehavioral synchrony and it seems because it's a it's it's phenomenon that we see in all the close attachments it does seem to be fundamental to the most intense love Mm -hmm. 
the guys who are trying to program empathy into AI, they're actually studying dogs because obviously we build attachments to our dogs and dogs do something to make us attached to them. So they're trying to work out what dogs do so that we will attach to the AI in the same That's way. That's so clever. So it's really, That's so crazy. a lot of the roboticists are working with dogs and what are the gestures and what, yeah. what are they doing? My dog always seems to like know what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. well they're yeah, highly they empathetic tell, dogs. Yeah, yeah. if I'm feeling yeah. down, my dog comes and like puts his like yeah. and he's like, because yeah, yeah. like, no. that's the thing. Because I don't know whether anyone's got a cat, but cats aren't. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, no, um, so cats don't have very high levels of empathy, but dogs have really high levels of empathy. So the argument with things like you know, uh, development of little fluffy seals and all this thing is, I think AI has the possibility to really benefit the human species, but we have to be very careful how we use it. Yeah. It cannot replace those most intense social interactions or caring interactions because care is about more than providing cups of tea and counting out tablets and you know washing the kitchen floor and making sure that you've got your microwave meal in the oven sort of thing it's actually about as a carer walking into a room and reading somebody's face and having empathy and thinking you're having a good day a bad day i need to help you celebrate i need to help you commiserate using your life experience to understand what that person needs and how that person feels and at the moment i find it very hard to understand how ai could do that because part of that is about the meeting of minds and it's about the wet brain on both sides. Now, a lot of the roboticists who I've been looking at will admit that and they will say, no, what we're developing in terms of coming into the caring sector and coming into the relationship sector are adjuncts to human interaction. So we're not saying you need to replace the human with this care robot. This care robot needs to do all those crappy jobs, the mundane jobs that actually don't involve any empathy and don't involve any of that. And then we free the human up to sit there on the sofa and hold the hand yeah. and say, how are you today? And they admit that, that that is, you know, because what it is, is this robot, they argue, will never be human. It's another species. So the most you can hope for is an interspecies relationship, mm-hmm. like you have with your dog. But the worry is, from my point of view, and here we go, slamming government again, but <laughs> because AI, yes, it's a lot of investment up front, but once they're out there... It's financially efficient. financially yeah. efficient. Yeah. What worries me is that governments will not hear that it has to be an adjunct and not a replacement, and they'll think, brilliant. Yeah. We can just leave it all We to can them. leave it all yeah. to robots. And then that has major consequences for people's mental and physical health and their well-being. But in a way, because AI is possibly so powerful, it would be quite good to have the conversation first yeah. and then develop <laughs> the tool so it fits into who we are as a species rather than retrofitting it once we've realised, oh my God, it's all gone pear-shaped and we've got all these people with all these problems. So that's where the tug is, is that we love innovating and we're very, very good at it, but actually we need to be a little bit more critically aware of its plus points and its minus points so that we can take the benefits, use it actually as a proper tool. So a tool is something that's supposed to enhance your experience. It really does show the value of like caring roles, doesn't it, in society? Completely, and we undersell those and we don't pay people enough and they're seen very much as very strongly as female roles mm-hmm. and yes we, and so we belittle that and so that much skill because it's not a, it's not about those practical things it is about that real meeting of of the human minds mm-hmm. tech's got a lot of potential to maybe bring <clears throat> people together as part of a community so we talked about Absolutely. religion earlier and we talked about on the one hand with religion there's love of a deity itself but there's also the fact that 
as part of a religious group, you're probably going to be engaging with the community of other people exactly. who believe in that. So that's that does that's brilliant for you. Yeah. And that's amazing for you. You know, our, going to the larger social network sites, you know, our place within the community, we know that people who are active in their community, people who volunteer, mm. people who have that give and take, are have much um, more positive outcomes in terms of well-being, in terms of mental and physical health, in terms of recovery from operations, in terms of longevity, because they're getting that huge benefit from being in that community. So yes, you know, being a Justin Bieber fan, brilliant. If you all go to your, you know, get in your Justin Bieber coach and go to your Justin Bieber concert, that's amazing. Are we comparing Justin Bieber to a deity? <laughs> well, he kind of thinks he is, doesn't he? But do you know what I mean? Uh, or going to church, uh, you know, and now this yeah. is, I can't remember what they're called, but they've now actually set up atheist churches. So oh, you actually right. go get the benefit sort of, of being at church. Yeah. But yeah. you're not actually, but because that huge power of being in the community. Yeah. You know, and I live in a small village and I'm not a believer, but I actually do go to church sometimes because you're within that village community and actually it's a real pillar of that community mm. and it's that place where you can come together as a group and you do feel huge benefits and you sing which releases beta endorphins and all these sorts of things and it's really powerful your social network your community again is is critical do you find yourself knowing as much as you do about relationships and love and the interconnectivity of all things and the complexity of the brain do you overthink your own life at all <laughs> You end up being in, in the I room don't thinking... In terms, I don't actually in terms of my romantic relationship with my husband because I've been married for God knows how long. 18 years this year. Ah, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. I met my husband when I was very much still chasing monkeys. So <laughs> none of this was used, <laughs> including him. Yeah. And, uh, so so I've never really used it on, on, on him. And actually I'm kind of... Whilst some people really want, for example, to have their genes done and are really interested in knowing what the possibilities are, I actually don't want to know. So I've never done any of my tests on me or my husband, okay. ever. I mean, I can tell you what attachment style I am, but I haven't actually done the actual test. I must admit, it has influenced the way I raise my children. Reading a lot of child developmental literature, though, when you're screaming at the top of your voice, put your socks on in the morning, you think, oh, no! <laughs> I've read so much on what things can do to the brain that sometimes it makes you very neurotic. Um, and you have to, like, give yourself a bit of leeway and go, no, all parents scream. With what you know about love, what's the key thing to bear in mind so the key thing to bear in mind is the value to you of your relationships of your love relationships or just your friendships or whatever they might be is do not underestimate them do not neglect them because they are the source of your well-being of your happiness of your health and I think we have a tendency particularly with social media to think it's another thing to be dealt with efficiently and to yeah I've done that tick and actually human relationships aren't supposed to be efficient they're supposed to be work because of the huge benefits they give you so it's called your social capital value it because it is hugely valuable to you so what is love love is inefficient <laughs> <laughs> absolutely this podcast is made possible by brilliant.org a great resource if you want to learn something new every day Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Problems, helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. And they've got a module on computational biology and the unravelling of what makes us tick, which you're bound to love. Especially since using the link in the podcast description will get the first 200 users 20% off a premium plan. Head to brilliant.org slash pintofscience. So, welcome back to the end of another episode of the Pint of Science podcast. What are you laughing at? Welcome back to the end of... That's quite a strange thing to say, isn't it, really? As you can hear from the alien laugh on mic number three there, who was that laughing there? 
It's Praveen. It's Praveen, exactly. <laughs> we have with us today, very excitingly, we have one of the other, well, the, the real, let's be honest, <laughs> the founder and co-director of Pint of Science, Praveen Paul. How are you doing, Praveen? I'm doing very well, thanks, uh, in this nice little quaint pub. It's very quaint, yeah, ad, isn't it? Ad stock, yeah. yeah. It's extremely quaint. It's got. It's actually got a thatched roof. It's called the Old Thatched Inn, and it They're is... Not That'll be why. It's not an exaggeration. Probably not allowed to call it the Old Thatched Inn, are you? It's got a slate roof. <laughs> So that was fantastic catching up with Anna. I had so much more to talk about. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I, there was a lot, of, a lot of good stuff. Seriously, a huge amount to talk about. And her science kind of touched on everything. I think I could have talked to her for Life fun. in general, yeah. yeah. Exactly. The most basic of, like, human emotions. The most basic of human emotions. Okay. That's right. <laughs> so if you're enjoying this podcast, which we hope you are, we certainly are, we want you to keep on tuning in, of course. So do subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Leave us a review. Rate us. Tell your science-loving friends all about us. We have new episodes lined up for you every Monday up until the festival that will see the end of series one but who knows what the future holds Callum you forgot to tell people about the website sorry for being <laughs> <laughs> pintofscience.com and choose your country and for all UK stuff pintofscience.co.uk that's right head on over to the website we will have all of our tickets available on what's that day Praveen 8th of April. 8th of April, that's right. That's when the tickets hit the website. There are events happening across 40 UK cities. There is so much going on. I am extremely excited. So am I. (laughs) (laughs) There are definitely, definitely... No nerves, so not a huge amount of work that to be done between now and April 8th. <laughs> the festival will be happening May 20th to the 22nd. Uh, that's a Monday to a Wednesday for anyone who hasn't memorised the 2019 calendar. We will have events happening every single evening. Most of our events will be running around 7.30 until 9.30, but do make sure you check the website in case there's any variations there. If you enjoyed what you heard today with Anna, of course, she will be speaking in Oxford. There will be hundreds of events as well, delving into pretty much any science you can imagine. I'd be brave enough to state there's probably not many fields of science that aren't covered in Pine yeah, of Science. Yeah, I'd agree. Everything is covered. Everything is covered, that's right. So, make sure you are there May 20th to the 22nd, but immediately right now, hit subscribe on whatever service you're listening to this podcast on. Hello everyone, I'm Sam, the producer of the Pint of Science podcast. I usually sit behind the desk whilst Callum and Jim do the talking. But I do have a podcast of my own, and since you're clearly into learning and having a bit of fun, you might just like it. It's called That Was Genius, and it's a history podcast in which my friend Tom and I surprise each other every week with a funny, gruesome, or just plain odd historical story. Other than having a weekly theme, the rest is up for grabs, so there's lots of silly jokes and plenty of dubious accents. A bit like these. Mais oui, these eight-month-old donuts. I have never tested anything like it. Sacre bleu. I've never tested anything so hard. I love the presentation box. When I open it, all the flies come out. <laughs> it's a beautiful. It is a multi-sensory experience. It is wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. The, the smell, the sight. Oh. <laughs> if you're interested in finding out more, search your favourite podcast app for That Was Genius or go to www.thatwasgeniuspodcast.com.